Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode. And today I am thrilled. We are going to interview a change maker, somebody who has been recognized at the highest level from time, from the World Economic Forum. I'm very pleased to welcome here Tristam Lecom, who is the founder of Second Life and the Pur Project. Thank you so much, Tristan, for being here with us today. Thank you, Samuele, for the invitation. And Tristan, uh, your accolade and recognition, you are one of the most influential people on the art and the field uh, of sustainability. But the usual question, who is Tristan? What is your sustainability journey? And what have you inspired to become a pioneer in this field? So I started actually when I was a student about uh, 29 years ago, I launched an NGO called uh, Solidarity France Nepal. Uh, helping uh, rural communities to develop solar cookers and improve cooking stoves and latrines. And from this experience as a student, after when I started my professional life, I first uh, worked for uh, a multinational, but uh, after two years, I quit to launch a fair trade company in 98 called Alter Eco, uh, importing and distributing organic and fair trade food products in France, uh, the US and Australia. 14 years after, I launched another social enterprise called Pure Projet, specialized in developing uh, nature-based solution climate projects within the supply chain of companies, meaning mostly planting trees, developing agroforestry, forest conservation, and regenerative agriculture projects to uh, inset the carbon footprint of companies. And with Pure Projet, we were the pioneers of this concept of insetting which means uh, offsetting the climate footprint of a company within its value chain. And more recently, three years ago, I launched another a third um, uh, social enterprise called Second Life, which uh, specializes in helping disadvantaged communities in coastal areas and on islands to collect, transport and recycle uh, ocean plastic. You have been able to discuss and see the two worlds, like the not-for-profit, and also the language of businesses. And also your experiences with Ec Paris and Harvard Kennedy uh, School, how did they shape your understanding of sustainability, business practices, climate action, and really helping you create and developing your entrepreneurship skills? Yeah, it's true that in the field of sustainability, there is various players, NGOs, public institution, social enterprise, and companies uh, who engage together in partnership to develop projects. On my side, I've always been uh, specialized in uh, working uh, with companies, helping them to engage in the sustainability journey by integrating social and environmental innovations, such as fair trade, carbon offsetting and insetting, and ocean plastic collection. I feel uh, the different players are very complementary between NGO. NGOs, uh, to me, are very well adapted in the cases of emergency or to do advocacy campaigns and uh, social enterprise. We've seen uh, them uh, rising more and more to propose solutions uh, that companies can integrate with their business practices. So in my case, indeed, coming from a, a business school and uh, having started uh, the first venture as a social enterprise, 
I kept uh, developing uh, different models uh, under this kind of uh, status. And I think that all are uh, very complementary. I see that it's more and more difficult for NGOs to raise uh, funding because um, companies have more and more scrutiny over how they, how they give grants. And more and more, I see the sector developing via the sale of environmental or social services. And in my case, I've chosen the second model. I want to take a step back. You said you started as a student working in the space that also as in my daily life, I can see the daily, the cook stoves, the work, the trees, and then you have worked in the nature base where you evolved there. So you, you have a huge experience in agroforestry, regenerative agriculture in your projects. Those are practices that we have discussed also in the portals. Many people now they are starting. We, we really feel that regeneration is what we need also for the planet. So how these practices really contribute to the climate change mitigation and what benefit they offer also to the farmers that are at the bottom and the investors that they really plug in there? So in my case, indeed, I've always done projects in partnership with grassroots communities because fair trade, as you know, uh, helps uh, small scale farmers gather in cooperative and uh, sell their product and develop uh, environmental and social projects. With Pure Projet as well, we work almost exclusively with uh, small-scale farmers. And as well with Second Life, we work with grassroots communities. And we connect them with uh, companies who want to contribute to generating social and environmental impact. So I think there is a strong complementarity between companies on one side and, and projects uh, on the other. Regarding uh, regenerative agriculture, we started with uh, agroforestry because I started actually to plant trees uh, with our suppliers of cocoa when I was uh, managing Alterico, the fair trade company. And we became with Pure Projet experts in planting trees in agroforestry models, mostly in combination with coffee and cocoa. So this is a model of regenerative agriculture. Yet uh, lately, in the last two to three years, we've seen a uh, new movement uh, rising about uh, uh, regenerative agriculture that is wider than just agroforestry. Agroforestry uh, for coffee and cocoa, we mostly apply it to small-scale farmers, as I mentioned, whereas REGAG, regenerative agriculture, now proposes practices even to large-scale farms. And regenerative agriculture consists, for example, in covering the soil, in rotating the, the culture, in reducing the, the depths of the tillage, or in developing uh, hedge grows. So uh, practices that can be adopted not only by small-scale farmers, but as well by intensive agriculture exploitation. And so we see with Pure Projet that we do mostly agroforestry in tropical countries in partnership with small-scale farmers and regenerative agriculture projects more in Europe or in the US and Canada with mid-size or larger farmers. So REGAG, apart from agroforestry, is a rather new movement and it's very encouraging to see that now we have solutions to propose to uh, very large-scale agricultural uh, exploitations, whereas before we were mostly focused on small-scale farmers. And it's really interesting because as we need to change our food system and the way we produce, it's really the complementarity of the work. And you have mentioned a lot the Pur Projet, your 
fast, important project. Uh, you have founded it in 2008 and you have been one of the most successful ventures. You have developed a lot of projects around the world. You have mentioned that you have started and developed there the concept of carbon insetting. How it differs from offsetting? What is it and how you have developed? So carbon offsetting means developing a project that will reduce or sequester carbon in order to uh, compensate for what companies uh, cannot reduce in terms of, um, of, of carbon footprint. These projects can happen anywhere. And the difference with insetting is that with insetting, we develop the project within the value chain of the company. So usually it means uh, we uh, plant trees or conserve forest or develop regenerative agricultural practices with the suppliers, with the agricultural suppliers of the companies. And we feel that this type of, of project that is integrated in the value chain of the company is more legitimate because it's transformative of the practices within the company. And as well, as you may know, now there is a new standard to engage company in carbon offsetting. It's called uh, net zero. It is um, composed of two components, the SBTI, sorry, there is a lot of acronyms. So SBTI is a science-based target initiative. It encourages the company first to reduce within its value chain. And you see that insetting is very interesting because as insetting happens within the value chain, these efforts can be considered as reduction and integrated in the SBTI trajectory of the company, which shall be the priority. And then the second component of this carbon framework is net zero, where the company can buy credits for what it can't reduce in order uh, to reach a net zero position, whereby the reductions plus the compensations is equal to zero and deducting with the emissions of the company. And so insetting is really a breakthrough and is now being recognized by these major frameworks as a priority, maybe the best way to engage for a company, because before often carbon offsetting has been criticized and for a reason, because some companies may have continued their business as usual. So they didn't transform the way they were producing or importing or distributing products. And they were just buying offsets which were not related with their value chain. So it gave the idea that we can continue to pollute because we buy offsets on the other side. And we understand that this is not a, a very virtuous circle. Whereas with insetting, the change happens within the value chain of the company. It transforms the agricultural practices. It reduces the footprint of the company. And it helps as well the company to offset the rest by planting trees. This is as well a very important element, the difference between planting trees or, for example, buying a solar panel. If you do an energy project, like you fund a solar panel or a hydroelectric power system or a windmill, it's great, of course, but you just reduce the emissions of creating energy. You don't sequester the excess of carbon that you've put in the atmosphere. Whereas with planting trees, you really sequester because the tree absorbs the excess of, of CO2 in its trunk and stores it. So that's why for the net zero framework, 
It's mostly carbon sequestration, so tree planting that has been put to the forefront. And for us, it's a great news because it gives more credibility to the framework. It encourages company to reduce first and then to sequester the excess of what they have not been able to reduce. So this new framework called net zero to us is much more legitimate than what was practiced before, which was called carbon zero, carbon neutrality, which uh, many people didn't really understand or, or didn't really like. And thank you so much for this clear explanation of the work and the trade, because it's really uh, sometimes in the acronym is really true. You can get lost ne neutral zero and science based. It's really interesting and very clear explanation. And I want to go a bit deeper. You know, we will talk about the criticism and the work on the carbon market. But I want to ask first, Pur Projet has been there for oh, more than 10 years. You have worked with trees in many countries. So can you share some impactful projects that you feel that are really transform and, and really you are really proud of but one of our projects in peru i started by planting 5000 trees uh, in partnership with uh, small scale cocoa farmers this was to offset the alterico company and from there we have had many companies many more uh, large companies who wanted to to join and now in this project we help the farmers to plant 5 million trees so it's quite successful we see the benefits of trees for farmers because they regenerate soil, water conditions. They protect the cocoa crops from extreme climate events. They diversify the revenues of the farmer. So the trees have really multiple ecosystem and economic benefits for the farmers. They generate wood, medicinal plant, fruits, and these environmental services for farmers. And beyond the plantation of 5 million trees in the same area, we've helped the farmers to protect an area of 400,000 hectares, which is still forested. It's a, a native forest. Thanks to a Red Plus project, it means a forest conservation project that we fund as well with the issuance of carbon credit. And based on this conservation project, uh, we helped the Peruvian government to bring an area of 2.4 million hectares at the registration at, at UNESCO as a biosphere reserve based on the model of our conservation project. So I'm really proud of this project because we can see that from a very small initiative, like planting 5,000 trees for a smaller fair trade company, we have been able to gather a lot of interest and support from larger companies and in this case, we've been able to plant 5 million trees, protect 400,000 hectares. At the last verification, there was no more deforestation within the conservation area, which is a, a great achievement. And we see that now the perspective is to be able one day to cover the 2.4 million hectares of the UNESCO Biosphere Reserve as registered by the Peruvian government. So it has a, this project has the potential to become a regional or even national. We have now the objective to plant uh, 50 million trees in this project, thanks to uh, a fund that we are creating now uh, with, uh, with a partner. And the objective like that is to really go very large scale to cover the whole area of the supply chain where various companies source uh, cocoa and coffee in this case. So you see what we want with Pure Projet, it's really to scale both the engagement of companies and as well, the transformation of territories in the areas where we operate. 
Because when you do a very large scale project, you can internalize the, what is called the carbon leakage. Uh, carbon leakage means uh, if I plant one hectare, just one hectare of forest here, maybe then people will deforest one hectare next door because they will need the area. So finally, my impact is zero. But if you do a very large scale project over a whole region, you contribute to change the mindset of people and you won't have people doing 50, changing their house uh, 50 kilometers further to cut the trees. So it's called internalizing the carbon leakage. And that's why we feel that very large scale project where we have a permanent uh, presence and where we can internalize uh, the carbon leakage have much more impact than small projects. So now with Pure Projet, we focus on uh, 15 uh, very large scale projects like that in Peru, Colombia, Indonesia, Thailand, China, uh, Ivory Coast, uh, Ghana, Ethiopia. We, we have decided really to, to focus our attention because for example, in Peru, we have more than 30 employees in the field plus uh, about 50 from the various co-ops that we work with. So of course, when we have many more employees, we can monitor and make sure better, and we can make sure uh, our project has a better impact. And it's a fantastic uh, achievement, I might say, and really you can see the scale and the work of regeneration uh, that you are putting there. And I want to tackle one of the questions that sometimes I know you have been aware of, we also discussed in other episodes, the recent articles that have been on the press, the criticism of carbon project and all the market. Some people they are calling for outright ban of it uh, because it's bad. So I want to ask your perspective of that, uh, you, especially also the, one of the criticisms sometimes is the community, the participation of community, how they are ensured their voice are, what sometimes one criticism is they have the lower part of the stick, people and investors, they exploit. And some people go to extend to say carbon trade is colonialism 2.0. So which is your perspective on that and how also they can be improved the carbon market, especially the voluntary one? So it's true that there is a lot of criticism on the carbon market and many of it is true, but there is two kinds of families uh, in the carbon market. There is a family of uh, traders and a very large scale project, which were sold between $1 and $5 per ton, which indeed have almost no impact. It's a diversion of the uh, carbon mechanism. Carbon is made normally to help people to develop an environmental project that they can't fund by themselves. This is a notion of additionality. But many big companies in China, India, and other countries have been using this mechanism just to make their project more profitable, whereas they didn't need the money from the carbon to do it. So there is an additionality problem. The project would have happened anyway. And because of that, they can sell the carbon at a very cheap price. And indeed, when you buy a credit like that, you have no impact or almost no impact. It's, it was done in 2016, saying that 75% of the projects have no or very little additionality. This is a main issue. The companies buying carbon credit at $1 to $5, they know that it doesn't make much impact, but what they want is to have this claim of carbon neutrality or something. And so indeed, this has to be denounced because it's a deviation, uh, even a fraud. That's how we see it. In the case of Pure Projet, we don't do that. We are not a trader. We are a project developer and we only uh, develop projects to sell them directly to the companies. 
There is the issue in the trading uh, sector as well that often you have many intermediaries and so no money or very little money arrives in the field. In our case, 70% of the money we are given goes in the field to invest. And we do that only with small scale farmers. So it ensures that there is a real additionality because the small scale farmers cannot plant the trees without our help. They don't have money and they don't have the technical knowledge to do it. So you see, it's very different from the first case that I was mentioning. In our case, we sell the carbon credit around 20 to $25 these days. So you see, it's much more than uh, one to $5 and with 70% invested in the field and only in partnership with small-scale farmers. This is how we can ensure that we have a real impact when we sell carbon credits, because we invest a lot for people who are disadvantaged, and we monitor our projects are over 40 years. Now, so it's a very long-term project. We have to monitor the sequestration of the carbon for at least 30 years. So since we work with more than 50,000 farmers, I cannot guarantee you that the trees in the 54,000 farmers farm grow perfectly and that everything is fine. We see various issues, of course. Some farmers die, some farmers sell their farm, some farmers don't want to keep the trees, but it's usually limited in the total amount of uh, beneficiaries. And we are quite confident that we have a good result. We are uh, certified by a third party under the standard called VERA or gold standard. And they come and this third party check the quantity of carbon that is sequestered and they deliver the carbon credits to the VERA registry. So we are not in charge to, uh, we do an accounting of our project, but it's controlled by a third party. So in our case, I see that there is many safeguards to ensure that there is strong additionality, money invested in the field, permanence as well on the long run, because there is a check every five years. It's not perfect, but I think we have to keep this methodology because it's really helpful and it's the only one we have today to do something for climate action. If we put uh, the carbon offsetting or insetting in the trash today, what will we do? Uh, we have a huge uh, challenge with climate change. So I think uh, we really need to continue with this methodology, but it's true that we have to, to, to tackle an issue. It's the people who abuse of the carbon methodology who don't use it for the proper reasons and who dump on the market huge amounts of very cheap credit that have no impact. So I really like the concept of additionality and the world because it's really also bringing an awful lot of different benefits for farmers, diversification, improved food security, improved yields for farms and increased also biodiversity in the environment, which is also the way. Carbon is not the North Pole or the North Star, I will say, is an ally that can help really bring in transformation. And this brings another uh, the question of your second and more recent work. So you have seen now you have mentioned the climate crisis. Now we have also the work with the plastic is another enemy that we need to tackle. From the past 50 years, we have seen an increase. We know the Pacific Ocean, a big island as bigger than Texas, and we all know the issues. So Second Life was born really to, to tackle this issue on ocean plastic. How does it work? Which and why you have did it and why? what are really the, the objective of these new initiatives? So Second Life works a bit like Pure Projet. We work with communities of disadvantaged uh, people. 
except that for Second Life, we don't work with cocoa or coffee farmers. We work on the beaches, in, started in Thailand, and we supported as well collectors in Indonesia. We have developed a model which uh, pays the local collectors a higher price or an incentive to collect any kind of plastic, uh, recyclable or non-recyclable. And thanks to this incentive, they are incentivized to collect it, whereas normally they would burn it or landfill it, or it would go back into the sea. So by giving a price to this plastic, we encourage them to collect it, to transport, and then we make sure it's being transformed into pellets, which allow the recycling of the plastic into new products, bottles or t-shirts or stuff like that. So we started three years ago in Thailand. Last year, we collectors to collect more than 2,000 tons. And it's a bit like for carbon credits. It's called Plastic Credit. And Vera, the organization developed the main standard for carbon offsetting, has developed a plastic reduction standard, which sets the rules for projects. And we were uh, the first one to be certified uh, globally one year ago with our project in Thailand. So we were really pioneering the way. And so... Our clients are companies in the cosmetic or consumer goods sector who have calculated their plastic footprint. They already pay for the legal tax uh, for putting packaging on the market. And in Europe, uh, there is a green point, for example, in most of the country. That is a tax to oblige uh, companies who uh, sell products with packaging to pay for the collection. But with Second Life, they go beyond that. They extend their producer responsibility by funding an additional project covering uh, partially their plastic footprint or fully their footprint uh, in order to help Thai people who don't have uh, enough money or a system to collect and recycle to be able to do it. So for example, Caudalie, it's a French cosmetic company. They use 500 tons of plastic per year. And so they buy 500 uh, plastic credits corresponding to the collection, transport, and recycling of 500 tons of ocean plastic in Thailand. I can imagine it also helped develop an industry in the country and really also be an enabler also to, to increase recycling, especially as my case here we have in Africa, sometimes recycling and work and collection is still something that we need to have and is also a, a, a possible way to increase circular economy. Which are the milestones within three years? You have already mentioned that you have reached uh, with Second Life. Where do you want to take it? So our goal is in seven years to be able to cover all the remote coastal areas and islands of Thailand. So there is a potential of 50,000 tons per year to collect and recycle. Uh, but for that, we need more uh, partners, more companies to engage. Uh, we've seen that we can scale up very quickly because when you give a value to plastic, uh, many collectors are interested to collect it and, and bring it. So now our main bottleneck is to find more clients. So we are in discussion with multinationals in order to be able to, uh, to cover all the, the needs uh, of the collectors in Thailand. Interesting. And then are you also helping to scale in other countries like in, in Africa, for example, or other area? Or for now, you are focusing mainly in Asia? No, we will focus only in Asia because 90% of ocean plastic uh, come from Asia, from six countries, of which Thailand. So we started as well in, um, in Indonesia and we may scale up in Indonesia, but for now we stay focused in Thailand. And uh, for all your work, you know, recognition have come. Of course, so you have been a pioneer in this field, working in, in, in this field for years. And Pur Projet and now Second Life are really transforming lives, at, even at the bottom of the period, at the grassroots level. 
And for that, you have been named social entrepreneur with the World Economic Forum. You are amongst time 100 most influential uh, people. So how this recognition have helped you really garner traction for your projects and influence? And maybe what can kind of advice also you can tell to the social entrepreneur that are listening to us? Yeah, it's true that these networks like the Schwab Foundation, which invite us in Davos uh, from time to time as social entrepreneur or the recognition from Time Magazine have helped to give credibility to what I'm doing. When I started in 1998, the word uh, social entrepreneur didn't exist. Sustainability had just been uh, created. So uh, it helped me at that time uh, to make people understand that what I was doing was serious. Today, there is a broad acceptance from society that we need to change and to innovate and to find new ways to produce and to consume. But this kind of recognition are still and networks are very helpful. I'm as well an Ashoka Fellow. Ashoka is a network, uh, international network of uh, social entrepreneurs. And uh, yeah, this kind of network, I think they are useful for social entrepreneurs who want uh, to be recognized uh, for the impact they generate. And I can see also your work is really, was really impressive and really helped transform many lives. And I'm sure and we want to continue and discuss. Yeah, for sure, we will discuss more. Maybe in other episodes, we see Second Life, how will be in one year or two years to see the impact and the scale. To close, we always ask our guests to give back to our audience what they can do, what action they can take towards what is the sustainability, a more sustainable future, and how they can also support businesses and, and change makers like you. Uh, it's great to offer external solutions like what we do with Alter Eco or Projet or Second Life. But the starting point is to look inside, maybe, at our own consciousness and indeed how, what we can do, what we can change. We can change at our individual level, at our community level, or at the international level. I think everybody can make a change. Uh, these changes usually happen uh, slowly, but it's uh, important as well to be kind to yourself, even though uh, sometimes what we do is, uh, is not sustainable and to believe that we can make a change, to stay hopeful uh, and to engage by reducing first our climate footprint or our plastic footprint. So reducing as much as we can and then uh, engaging by offsetting the rest we can't, uh, we can't reduce. Or starting uh, your own uh, social enterprise. I think there is a great opportunity today because uh, when you start a social enterprise, you will be helped more than if you start a conventional company. And today, the acceptance from, from society is very high. So it's a great opportunity to develop uh, a, a company and, and create jobs and a new value. And thank you, Tristan. So I hope people, they are listening to us, will move and really foster and spin more the wheel towards a more sustainable one. Thank you so much, Tristan. It's been a pleasure and honor having you. Thank you. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.